there's kind of this, this idea that the pastor is going to come in now and this mysterious, intimidating, scary book of Revelation, you can give thanks to God, congregation, that I'm here to explain to you what it means. You won't say it this way, but uh, some of us have known about the danger of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is a Greek word on knowledge and the idea that somehow certain people are privileged to secret knowledge and the knowledge is the way to salvation. There's a danger in presenting the seven sermons like, wait a minute, you poor people will never get it. But again, you know, good thing I came along and I'm the big revealer who will give you these truths. And you go, oh, wow. And, and I have the same with leading tours. You know, it goes one step further, you know, for those I've been there, you know, and I can tell you what it really means, these symbols and so forth. There's a call for humbleness here. <laughs> Be careful that you don't preach or teach it in a way that your, your audience feels marginalized or distant, so, you know. Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast, episode 266. I'm your host, Mike Neglia, and the voice you just heard is that of our guest for this week, Dr. Jeffrey Wyma. Dr. Wyma is professor of New Testament at Calvin Theological Seminary, where he has taught for the past three decades. Uh, he is a, a scholar and a very well-spoken communicator. He's able to teach in an interesting, contemporary, and practical way. He's published uh, six books so far, and five of them have to do with the letters of the Apostle Paul. And the most recent one is, he, he calls it, On the Seven Sermons of Jesus to the Seven Churches in Revelation. Uh, not letters, but sermons. You'll hear more about that in the interview itself. This is a book that I was reading for my own personal preparation for a teaching series that I was going through. And I was so enriched personally from the book that I wanted to try to get him on the show and have a conversation with him. Part of this is for your benefit. I, I think the listeners of the show need to be able to, to hear and learn from this man, but selfishly, mostly for my benefit. I wanted to ask specific questions and I wanted to get advice from the man himself. In this conversation, we talk about feedback, making academic study accessible to the broader church, and the chair of despair. I think that you're really going to like this one. So before we start, let me just say that registration for our next in-person training event has gone live. There'll be a link in the show notes that will take you straight to the registration page if you want to book yourself in for our two-day preacher's training event in Austin, Texas. June 2nd and 3rd. The early bird registration is for the whole month of March and at $70. Then April 1st to 15th, it goes up to 80. And then April 15th and onwards, it goes to its full price of $90 per person. Uh, trust me, this is an investment that will bear fruit in your life. Maybe you want to come by yourself, make some friends. Maybe you want to bring your team. Uh, if there's a, a women's ministry director, a youth pastor, if there's an intern, if there's anyone that you can think of who wants to grow in their personal study and public proclamation of God's word, well, come on down to Texas. I can't wait to see you there. Again, it's Austin, Texas, June 2nd and 3rd. And then for you forward planners, let me just say that we're going to be in Indiana 
in the city of Indianapolis, October 27th and 28th. So Texas in June, Indiana in October. All right, here is Dr. Jeffrey Wyma from the study to the pulpit and from the academy to the pew. All right. Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective podcast. Uh, once again, uh, I'm glad uh, to have as a guest this week, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Wyma. And we're going to speak about the seven churches of Revelation and ways to interpret and to apply this um, notoriously uh, tricky book. Uh, but before that, uh, Jeffrey, I'm not good at small talk. I'm just going to ask you straight away. What's the first time that you ever preached a sermon? And then as we hear about that, I'm sure we'll kind of get to know you a bit that way. Uh, well, thanks, Mike. Uh, it's a pleasure for me to talk with you and uh, to share a little bit about at least uh, part of what I've been doing lately, and, and namely uh, looking at the book of Revelation. So uh, going back to when I first preached, I, I can hardly remember. I'm not I don't think I'm that old, but I do know that before I even felt a call to ministry, the local pastor, I was involved in the youth group, asked me to speak at the local old age building. And I was the favorite preacher there, uh, not because of the content, but because I have a loud voice. I was probably the only person they could really hear. And so uh, I, I have some humbling memories about uh, my stumbling attempt at preaching, you know, without any training at all. And then that was part of the process uh, that God used to, I think, instill in me a call to ministry. And then I uh, started thinking about going to grad school, uh, that is, uh, to, to get a master's of divinity. And then I finally got uh, training. So I do kind of remember that first sermon. I was in northern Alberta. It was a very rural, but nevertheless large congregation. I think there were like seven to 800 people. So it's pretty intimidating for the first yeah, time yeah. to preach. And what's more, not only were they a large group of people, they were unbelievably good listeners. They seem to have nothing else to do in these long winters but read <laughs> books about theology, and uh, they listen with a very critical uh, ear. And uh, I remember I had a sermon, something like, Are You Born Again? And uh, it doesn't sound like a very uh, racy title, but in my circles, that wasn't the kind of language that was used. And I remember the elders afterwards uh, give me a little bit of a hard time about that. And uh, I tried to say, well, you know, I thought I read that in... John 3, you know, and uh, we have a confession in our tradition, which also uses the language of being born again. But I found out quickly that preaching is uh, difficult, <laughs> nerve-wracking, and it's sometimes dangerous. Uh, and uh, that's, that, that's what we all go through. And I guess I'm quite happy uh, to be now quite a few years removed from that. You know, it's nice to get over those initial humps and to have uh, a greater degree of confidence uh, based on experience and training in uh, in preaching. Yeah, well, yeah, thanks for letting us in on, on both of those. Um, curious, just personally, so they were taking you to task over over what, using the language of born again, or is it because, or, or were you implying that there might be some unregenerate amongst the congregation? Is that the, it's, it's a long time ago. I come, I come from a reformed tradition, uh, which uh, has strengths, but also weaknesses, and it's somewhat insular. And in that day, um, 
Born again was language that more broadly evangelicals use. It wasn't language that those within the reform camp did. And so they were just maybe a little uncomfortable, and that made them a bit suspicious about this young uh, preacher, you know, from out of town, uh, you know, coming with these challenging uh, ideas. So uh, I felt pretty confident that what I was saying was based on Scripture, and that's an important point, too. I I try to encourage students. Um, I know, of course, it's impossible not to be influenced by your audience. I mean, we all want our audience to like and respond well to what we're saying, and it'd be foolish not to have your ear to the ground, but I always think of 1 Corinthians 4, where Paul, despite being a pastor there for a year and a half, despite leading them to Christ, uh, didn't have a good relationship with the Corinthians. And uh, they seemed to be more impressed with Apollos, this uh, gifted orator. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 says something like, um, I care very little whether I'm judged by you or by any human court. It's the Lord who judges me. And he'll one day return and make clear what is in the motives of each person's heart. And so in a certain sense, um, pastors need to kind of close their ears to what the audience may judge positive or negative and focus on the one person to whom they're accountable, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if that's your motivation and your your preaching is based on the word, um, then whether people like it or not, again, there's a human need for us to be affirmed. But, you know, there, there is also... Um, a danger, right? That we're always trying to uh, win over the crowd. And and even if we're successful, then we run into the danger of trying to beat ourselves. We're trying to be better every, you know, than we were the week before. And so uh, somewhere along the line, preachers need to reach a mentality of, wait a minute, I'm being faithful with the time and the talents that God has entrusted with me. I'm going to do my best in, you know, explaining the word. And uh, I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit will Will, will bear fruit, you know, to that word. And I hope that I will be encouraged because the same Paul says in Thessalonians, encourage each other and build each other up. So that's important too. But we shouldn't be a slave to uh, whether or not uh, others find us uh, successful. Yeah, I believe it was Spurgeon in his lectures to his students. He spoke about how every good preacher needs to have one blind eye and one deaf ear. And going to, to your points, you know, the ability to, to some degree, tune out uh, some kind of uh, undue criticism, and then also to turn a blind eye to some, uh, what's the word, like, over-exaggerated praise. Yeah. And one more point I might make, I think there's also the danger of the other extreme. You know, I found that biblical literacy is... Uh, increasingly a problem, you know, in recent times. And then that can be dangerous, too, because that means that pastors, in a sense, can get away with a lot more than they could have perhaps in the past. In other words, you know, there aren't people there who have the biblical knowledge or the theological training to offer a helpful evaluation. And uh, uh, pastors should be careful not to take advantage of that either, right? Um, uh, so, so there are, you know, like a lot of things in life, right? There are dangers on the extremes, and, and they're also positive. So I think it's good that that church uh, was listening carefully and weren't afraid, especially the leadership, to raise some questions. Uh, but, of course, it can go too far, and then, uh, you know, there has to be a, a proper balance in this whole uh, equation of the relationship between a pastor and the leadership and the congregation. 
Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for bringing in that um, that counterbalance, you know. Um, but yeah, it, would that every congregation have a, a cold Canadian winter to, to go through and nothing but theology books to keep them entertained? Um, at least one, at least one winter like that, and then maybe a little bit broad uh, throughout then. So how have you grown over over the years? Um, there's certainly, I, I'm imagining there's things that you used to do that you've intentionally stopped, or perhaps things that you've, you've intentionally added to your preaching preparation rhythm or delivery. Um, how have you grown over these years? Well, uh, one, one obvious thing is um, I've learned what things to leave behind in the study and what things to bring to the pulpit. I think at the very beginning, I had this sense that I had to ex explain every single word in the whole passage. And if I didn't, people would be saying to themselves, oh, he didn't say anything about that or this. And that's so far from reality. Again, I wish that people were following that closely. And, and what's more, that's not really a helpful way to, to preach because uh, we have that expression in English, right? You lose the forest for the trees. Uh, and if you, if you focus too much on all those little exegetical details, I think it, be, it can become easy to, to lose the thrust of the passage, the main point. And so um, uh, I think I've learned uh, the hard way, uh, right? That even though there's some good stuff, and it's hard sometimes for a pastor because you found it and you're excited about it, and plus you want to somehow show that you've been working hard at a great detail, and, and yet sometimes you have to say, no, I guess I should just leave that behind. And, uh, and um, you know, sometimes less is more, right, in the sense of being clear, uh, because you're thinking about this passage over and over again for a long period of time, and people are only hearing it one time, you know, kind of cold turkey. And so you have to be really, really clear and deliberate about what you want to say if you want to communicate well. So, so that's one, I think, principle. I, I mean, I've learned a lot of little things along the way. I'm not trained as a homiletician. I'm a New Testament scholar, so I'm an egghead, you know, on academic side things. But I preach an awful lot. And one of the things that I do that most pastors don't get to do is I get to preach the same sermon over and over again. And uh, there's something good about that. Uh, at least at least this, this is how I've kind of learned. So I found when I repeated sermons, I almost found myself naturally doing certain things. And then after a while, when this happened on a number of different sermons, I started to pull back and say, now, well, why did I change it from the way that I originally did? And I could kind of discern some patterns or practices. And so that became helpful for me to kind of uh, learn. Now, most pastors don't have that privilege, but for example, um, direct discourse is a lot more lively and engaging than indirect discourse, right? I mean, it's one thing if you just said, oh, they did this and they did that, but if you can somehow put it into a first-person narrative or even a third-person narrative, but in direct discourse, it, somehow the text pops. It, it, it just comes it just uh, comes alive. Also, details. Um, I think it's good that even if you're telling a, a story that may not be true, well, sorry, that I uh, shouldn't say that, it's true, but it's not maybe, you know, you want to hide details in order, let's say it's a real story, but you want to hide details. I think at first I kept out names, for instance, because I didn't want, you know, someone who maybe knew my past, could maybe figure out who I or what church I was talking about. But I found out afterwards that it's good to still include names, may not be the original names, you can let the audience say that, but when you mention the name of a person and the name of a place, 
it kind of personalizes the story. And again, it also uh, kind of comes alive in a, in a fresh way uh, that um, uh, I think didn't before. I think that um, a, a personal testimony, of course, you have to be careful not to overdo it. But again, the first person voice can be uh, significant. Sometimes it can be a rhetorical eye. Uh, I mean, let's imagine in a sermon uh, when I'm doing application, I suddenly, so in my battle with cancer, da 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 da. And for a second, people are saying, I didn't know you had cancer. But then the next time, so in my difficult marriage, da, 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 and then they'll either say, oh, I didn't know you had a difficult marriage and cancer, or they're like, okay, I guess what he's doing is he's projecting himself into the mind of the audience in order to give a variety of examples. And that's another way uh, in which um, uh, I think the text can come alive in fresh and more powerful ways than the way I wrote it originally, right? Um, and since you've asked me, um, uh, this is another way that I've learned. Um, at, at my school, Calvin Theological Seminary, for a number of years recently, uh, I've had a homiletician, a person trained in preaching, come into uh, the class. And so what I did is... Um, in class, we would exegetically, right, we'd make all the hermeneutical moves of going through the interpretation of the passage. I always did that before. But then, after doing that in either one or two classes in detail, I said to the class, okay, I'm going to preach my sermon on this passage. And uh, I said, you're going to be a dangerous audience. You're going to be an audience like you never ever get in the pew because your audience will never ever hear a sermon that they spent like a week or two, you know, looking at in detail. But uh, this will put you in a good position to listen to my sermon and say things like, now, what things did we talk about in the preceding weeks, right, that he did leave in the study, right, and he didn't bring to the pulpit? Um, were there complicated technical, you know, uh, details? Did he ignore them? And that, was that a good thing or a bad thing? Or did he find a way to summarize them in a very user-friendly way, you know, that the audience could still track, right? Um, I sometimes would ask them, how much time of my sermon was spent in exegesis, the then and there, and how much of the sermon was spelt in application, here and now? Most people don't think about that, you know, the balance between the, you know, what God was saying to the people then and what God is saying through his word now. So, so anyway, so that was kind of, I think, helpful, not only for the students, but now I'm getting to the part where I benefited. So then the homiletician, a person trained in preaching, uh, I would sit, I would jokingly say, in the chair of despair, and then uh, he would field questions and comments from the students, and we did a debriefing session on my sermon. And that became an occasion for me, you know, to learn also. So for example, I'll give one specific example so it's more concrete. I was uh, uh, preaching on 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. That passage may be well known to many people because it's one of a couple of key passages in Thessalonians that deals with the end times and specifically with the return of Jesus. And so a lot of people are interested in that passage, but it's also a passage that deals with the death of Christians and the comfort that comes with that. And so a lot of times it's read at funeral services or at the graveside and so forth. So anyway, I prepared with students. We went through, I think, two classes in detail, approaching that text grammatically historically, literarily, theologically, and then it was time for me to preach on that. And I opened this sermon with a rather catchy, interesting, entertaining story having to do with the rapture and the end times. I won't give all of those details. 
And of course, I got a nice reaction. People were, you know, the students were listening and they laughed at the right point and all of that. But my homiletician uh, colleague pointed out at the end, he did so graciously, he said, well, you know, the thrust of the passage that we did in the exegesis was that Paul in this passage is first and foremost doing what? He's not first and foremost um, predicting. He's first and foremost pastoring. In other words, you know, the primary purpose of this passage is not to give a blueprint for the future, you know, and to talk about how Jesus will come back, as interesting as that may be. The primary purpose is to provide comfort, right? The verse ends, therefore, comfort one another with these words. And so he said, your opening story, you know, didn't really fit. And, and I thought to myself, oh, shoot, you know, because I like that story. It's a funny story. I get a good reaction from that story, you know, but I, I couldn't help I couldn't deny the fact that he made a legitimate point. And so I had to go back to the drawing board. And because I get to, I preached it to a class the following year, I, I, I threw out that story, right? As much as I loved it, as much as my audience loved it. And instead I came up with a introduction that, that better fit and set up the, the stage for that pastoring function that I wanted to, uh, to stress. So, so the point I'm saying is, um, I, you know, we, we get feedback from others, and even those of us who've been preaching for a long time, and uh, I guess I could have ignored it. It would have been easy to do, you know, uh, but uh, yeah, you're like, I think hey, this, hey, buddy, you're not invited back. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm just saying this is also an instant, you know, that preachers often face. No one would know. I mean, no one in the audience would know. I mean, but, but this is Paul again, 1 Corinthians 4, right? It's the Lord who judges me, and he knows what's going on in the heart. So out of being faithful to a calling to Christ and to the Word, I felt like, okay, that's really what I ought to have done, and that's what I did. And so anyway, I, I, you know, these are things along the way that you pick up. And then when you write a new sermon, obviously you don't forget those little, little insights, and then now, instead of learning them the hard way and doing it the second or third time, now when you write a brand new sermon, you can kind of incorporate those insights from the get-go, and your sermon starts off, you know, with better quality from the get-go. Yeah, so I, I don't envy the the chair of despair. That doesn't sound like it's a, a lot of fun, and then especially to to endure that you know, in, in front of the students, you know, and so you've almost kind of, well, you certainly have been the authority uh, up until that point. And then to to humbly receive critique in such a way that's going to help them. That's, that's what a great, I'm sure a memorable learning experience for them. Well, I mean, I, I probably wouldn't have done, I didn't do that my first year or second year teaching, you know, so there comes a point where you, you, you hopefully become more mature and and, and, and all preachers need to do it because it's impossible to please everyone. And we're not perfect. We can't hit a home run every week. And so uh, uh, I thought this would be a good learning enterprise for the students. And so I wanted them to kind of have a window into this dialogue. I wanted them to hear, you know, how I might respond to their questions and how, the, how I might respond to my colleague. But all of us, too, I think, should uh, have a heart that, that we're, we're eager to become better, right? To grow and become more effective uh, proclaimers of the gospel. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm trying to proclaim the gospel here at, at my own local church. And uh, the elders and I decided a couple months ago that, uh, that we were going to start the year uh, it's January at the time of recording this, uh, going through the the seven, uh, 
what's called the seven letters uh, to the seven churches of Revelation. And so I've been trying to, to do that, to proclaim the gospel week in, week out um, through that those passages. And I have been seeking out uh, coaches and guides and commentaries um, in that section. I got a lot of recommendations and then I bought a lot of books. And you want to know my favorite? My favorite is this yellow beauty right here. Uh, the Sermon to the Seven Churches of Revelation, a commentary and a guide by Jeffrey Wyma. Hey, that's you. <laughs> um, so I really, I've really, really uh, enjoyed uh, going going through this. This is like risen to the top of the books that I've been consulting, and then also too, there's been a few that I've looked at even after a few weeks that I think I think I'm they're they're towards the bottom. I don't know if I'm going to use them very much, but this is my favorite. Anyway, I'm I'm buttering you up uh, now to ask like. What's what's the story behind this? Um, how how did you come about writing this book? I've I've heard that it involved seven men in Ohio. Is that correct? Well, seven pastors in Iowa. So close. Ah, my research <laughs> so, was faulty. <laughs> well, um, it, you know, it is interesting. Uh, just to quickly share with your audience, you know, that I'm a Pauline guy. So I'm New Testament, but more narrowly in Paul. And I've written five books on Paul and lots and lots of articles related to Paul. So this is my first um, uh, kind of academic writing outside of, of, of Paul, and at least uh, substantive. But there's, uh, there's kind of an interesting story, I think interesting. So the germ of it started maybe 12 or 13 years ago when um, there was a group of pastors in Iowa, and they regularly met. Uh, they went, met, you know, to kind of encourage each other in their ministry, and uh, they, they knew about me from other contexts. And they said, let's invite Jeff down, right? And have him tell us everything we need to know about the seven letters of Revelation. And then each of us will write one sermon. We'll divide up the seven among each of us. And we all live pretty close to each other. And so we'll preach at round robin in each other's congregations. And, uh, and so that was the idea. And although I had not uh, written or researched uh, these seven letters at all, I, I said yes. And the reason I said yes is because I'd already been busy leading biblical tours. I'd led a number of tours to Greece to this point, and I was just ready to expand tours to Turkey. And of course, the seven churches of Revelation are located all in uh, Western Turkey. And I thought, okay, good. I, I, this will do double duty, right? The research I do for these pastors It'll save me the work I have to do for the presentations I want to do on the tour. So anyway, so I went there and I did. I, it was a lot of work at, at the very beginning. And uh, I went there and uh, I didn't really follow my motto of less is more. I gave them, I'm sure, too much looking back at that. But anyway, their plan didn't quite work out as much as they intended. One of the, one of the councils, one of the leaderships of these pastors, I think, uh, thought that this was uh, a, a kind of an attempt for their pastor to maybe uh, not work as hard as he should have. And they couldn't say that, of course. So they instead said, we think, Pastor, that you're a much better preacher than all those other six. And uh, we really would love to hear you preach all seven, you know. And so one of these poor pastors uh, had to kind of excuse himself from the group, and he had to do all seven. And then the remaining six said, okay, change of plans. We'll all write a sermon on Ephesus, which is the first of the seven. And then we'll, uh, you know, we'll do an independent one on one of the remaining six, and we'll do round robin on that. And so that's how that story ultimately uh, panned out. Then for me, 
Um, so I had done the research for the pastors, but then I started leading the tours to Turkey. And uh, so I started sharing this with people on the tour. And also, I, I do a fair amount of travel in the uh, Mediterranean, and not just travel, but um, visiting archaeological sites and doing research on history and geography and culture. And all of that has powerful implications for understanding any of the New Testament writings, but especially and including the book of Revelation. One of the debates of the seven letters is, are there any what are commonly called local allusions, local allusions in the seven uh, letters? In other words, are there specific references to something in Ephesus, in the Sermon to Ephesus, and in Smyrna, and so forth? And so I became more and more knowledgeable about, again, the history, archaeology, culture, geography, and then I started entering into that debate, saying yes or no to some of those questions. And then, on top of that, I also lead these seminars, uh, sometimes for lay people, sometimes for, for pastors. I, I lead one or two-day preaching seminars, and so I added this to my repertoire. I've got a couple of different topics, and so I started leading seminars on the seven letters or sermons, as I'll have a chance, hopefully, to explain. And then, finally, I got to the point, I'm like, well, you know, I'm preaching all the time, and uh, I need some new material to preach on, and I'm teaching pastors to preach on this. It's kind of silly that I'm not. And so then I started preaching sermons on the seven uh, sermons. And then, in the meantime, I finally finished my uh, magnum opus, my 711-page commentary on First and Second Thessalonians, and I finished a user-friendly book on Paul, and my slate was clean, and then the publisher said, what would you like to do next? And I said, well... I said, I've kind of done all this work on the seven letters. Uh, you know, I, th I, think, I think that would, would be a good project. And so, so, so that's finally how it came together. And I wrote it, not fast, but wrote it relatively quickly because, as I hope you're starting to understand, there's kind of a long track record, right? The, the, the material has been beta tested, we would used to say, not just academically, uh, but also pastorally, you know. And, and so I think that the product at the end is a better quality than if I had just written it, you know, let's say, you know, 10 years ago, uh, let's say after doing the seminar with the pastors. Well, it's, it's got, yeah, a long and storied history and it's arrived across, across my, my desk and I was enjoying it. And then this is, this is what I do sometimes. I, 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 I'm enjoying a book. I, I check the back and then I say, Hey, is this author still alive? <laughs> and then the next thing is, Hey, do I know anybody at Baker Academic? And then I shoot off an email and I say, hey, I'd love to speak with, with this author um, because selfishly and greedily, uh, this, this helps me and, and my ministry. And then, you know, I, I believe and I trust that through this podcast, it's going to help other uh, teachers and preachers and, and students. But like, first and foremost, I'm just greed, greedily, I want to talk to you. So, so here I am and other people get to get to listen in on it. So, uh, that's, that's wonderful. I'm glad you're still alive. Uh, keep on exercising, keep eating healthy. Uh, cause we need, we need more of this stuff, uh, from you in the future. Well, uh, thank you. Um, uh, I am working hard, uh, you know, to stay healthy and well, it's hard to fight age, but, uh, uh, the Lord willing, I'm planning to to be involved in uh, writing and research and preaching and teaching for a while. I might just say, because, um, again, uh, most in the audience may not know the book, it's important uh, to for them to know that the book reflects that trajectory I just shared. In other words, you know that about two-thirds of each chapter are exegesis, a rather detailed, but, um, you know, somewhat 
user-friendly explanation of what the text meant, right? You know, and so forth. But uh, what I think is also kind of unique about the book is the last third, written in a different font and with a shaded background to kind of mm-hmm. set it apart, is my own sermon on each of the seven letters or seven sermons. And even for me, they're fairly heavily exegetical sermons. But, you know, um, on the other hand, you can see, because I've added a, hopefully a catchy introduction and I've done some application at the end, and you could see, too, again, what things I left in the study, right? What things were left in the first two-thirds of the chapter under exegesis and didn't make it to the pulpit, didn't make it to the sermon. And so the book hopefully models. It not only equips a pastor to, do, you know, to teach uh, or to preach on this material. I shouldn't say just pastors because it's good for, for teachers, too. But it kind of models that move from the study to the pulpit. And, and I don't think a lot of academic books do that, right? You know, they, they and, and then, so you end up with either academics writing on any book of the Bible, including Revelation, and, and it's often good, but, mm. you know, they, they haven't thought carefully or helped the reader much in how do you translate it to a modern audience. And then I've met a number of contemporary preachers, uh, you know, who are good communicators and come up with good analogies and applications. But their exegesis isn't always so solid. Their explanation of the text isn't always so reliable. So because of my history, uh, I'm trying to bridge the gap then between the academy and the pew. And I think that book does it in a way that um, not many do anyway, at least in the book, not, not, not many dealing with the book of Revelation. Yeah, well, I mean, you took the words out of my mouth because you you said earlier on, as you talked about in your your growth since your early days, you you learned that not everything needs to make its way in, into the final sermon, and that's yeah exactly what's modeled um, in in this book. The sermon is based on the previous, uh, you know, exegetical work, uh, but it is a summarized version of it, and that's what our people need. They they don't they don't need to know uh, the history or the various ways that Nika or Nika can mean victory or it, all the derivatives of that. They just need to know the, the big idea, and it's it's a helpful thing. It reminds me of the the NIV Application Commentary series, which has maybe a similar process to it. They have also a bridging gaps section in between that kind of shows the the uh, yeah, the parallels, and then it goes into the actual preaching thing itself. But I haven't seen too much like this, and it's a very useful. Uh, it's a gift uh, to us who are trying to understand the passage and then communicate it well. You're modeling it for us. Good. Well, thank you. Uh, that's right. Um, uh, that's right. That 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 was kind of a a genre breaking, right? Genre for you know, it's a different kind of commentary that application series, which has now already come out a few years ago. Um, yeah. And but, you know, the, your, your audience may not realize it, but in the academy, you know, where I hang out until recently, it was considered, um, I don't know, not not in, not important or valued to kind of uh, speak to the population. Uh, in fact, uh, I, I remember there was a, a younger female scholar who published something in Bar Biblical Archaeological Review. Uh, it's a it's a popular uh, magazine. And anyway, one of uh, her colleagues said, if you don't want tenure, just keep on publishing articles like that. In other words, there's a strong bias against communicating to the broader church. Now, thankfully, that's changed because of what well, people like Tom Wright, um, uh, you know, Marcus Borg, uh, some of them are not always so conservative, uh, but um, these are good communicators who've kind of paved the way and said, wait a minute, 
um, uh, you know, the larger church needs to have access to this material too. And anyway, so that's kind of a more recent change or transition within the academy to kind of bridge the gap again between the academy and the pew. Yeah, well, hey, as a representative of the little guy, thanks for remembering us. <laughs> thanks for including us uh, in, in this. I, I appreciate it. Now, I know that you you are, as you mentioned earlier on, like you're mostly kind of a, a New Testament kind of a Pauline letter guy, uh, the letters of Paul particularly. Now, everyone, well, many people refer to Revelation 2 and 3 as the seven letters of Jesus to the church, but but not you. It seems that you probably understand what a letter is more than most, and yet you consciously choose to not call it a letter. Do you have a a minute or two to explain why you're referring to this as a sermon versus a letter? Of course. Um, So on the one hand, you know, that phrase, the seven letters, you know, is well entrenched. And I'm not against a pastor or uh, using it, maybe just not to confuse people. So, but on the other hand, um, I do know something about letters, and my fifth book was called Paul, the Ancient Letter Writer, in mm-hmm. which I stress very much the form and structure of Paul's letters and how that's really crucial for interpretation. And so you can understand, therefore, when I get when I came to the seven so-called letters, yeah. uh, you know, it was clear to me that actually, one, the text never calls them letters, right? So people shouldn't be upset if I question that. It's not like I'm questioning the Bible itself. So don't claim more than the Bible claims. So they don't claim to be letters. And furthermore, they actually have virtually nothing in them that are letter-like. And I'm not the only person to notice that. There are a number of commentators who uh, have said exactly the same thing. So uh, anyway, that was important for me. And so it was important enough that I said, okay, I'm going to go against the grain, even though maybe it might be confusing for some, I'm going to talk about the seven sermons instead of the seven letters. Now, Having said that they're not letters, though, doesn't mean that they don't have a structure. They just don't have an epistolary structure, but they very clearly have an outline or structure to them. Mm -hmm. And just like knowing the letter structure is important for understanding Paul and New Testament letters, so also the structure of the seven sermons is crucial. Because when there are changes in that outline or structure, that's not by accident or fluke chance. So, for example, okay, um, normally the second thing in every letter is what I call the commendation. Jesus gives a kind of thumbs up to the church. He says something that they're doing good. However, when you get to, uh, say, uh, Sermon 5, Sardis, and they've been listening to 1, 2, 3, 4, right? And Mm. Jesus always starts off by saying something positive and good. And so I can anticipate them sitting there. Okay, Jesus, you know, what's the good thing you're going to say for us? And then, uh, you know, the words that come out of his mouth are, wait a minute, (laughs) Uh, you know, you are dead, right? Uh, uh, You're dying. And so, so the reader ought to pick up, and I'm afraid they, if you don't know the structure, you'll miss it. The reader ought to pick up that Jesus judges the situation in Sardis so serious that he can't bring himself to say anything positive about it. Normally, normally the Bible is important for what it says. There are occasions, and this is one of them, where the Bible is important for what it doesn't say, right? And so, anyway, there are other ways in which, if I had time, uh, I could stress the fact that knowing the structure or outline of each of the sermons is important. So, Yes, they're not letters, 
yes, I won't think you're a heretic. I won't hate you if you're a preacher and you keep using the title, the seven letters. Uh, but it is important for you at least to know, and you can decide whether you want to change the title to sermons or not, right? But it is important to know that they're not letters, but nevertheless have a structure and, and that knowing and following that structure in your interpretation exegesis is an important part of getting, getting those sermons right. Yeah, I have a, a parallel Bible right right here at my desk. You know, King James calls it the message to the church in Ephesus, NIV to the church in Ephesus, the message. The me- yeah, everyone calls it the message. It's just a bit of, I don't know, preacher shorthand that has gotten into common vocabulary. But is it a hill to die on? Probably not. But again, I- I'm talking to somebody who's put a lot of thought into it, and I certainly want to hear from the horse's mouth uh, why you're referring to that. Now, now, here's a follow-up question. So if these are sermons from Jesus, and if we are talking to an audience of, of preachers, what can or should we learn about, like, how does Jesus preach? How does the resurrected Jesus preach? And how can that impact the way that we should be preachers as well? Um, well, I'm, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that question, I'm afraid, because you're asking a question that the text is not intending to answer. Now, That happens a number of times in life. There are a number of questions we have that the Bible is not intending to answer. So it doesn't mean it's not a good question, Mm. but it does raise some concerns that, one, if the Bible doesn't answer that question, we shouldn't be frustrated with the Bible because, uh, you know, it's not, you're, you're, it's like you're asking it to do something that it's saying, well, I'm not doing that, right? So don't fault me. Uh, And so the only hesitation I have is, um, uh, I mean, I don't see any exhortations in the Bible say, you know, preach the way Jesus did or something like that. Now, on the other hand, um, in Philippians 2, the life of Jesus is held up as a model to follow, his humility, you know, his humbleness, his obedience, and so forth. And so there is a place for the imitatio Christi, the imitation mm-hmm. of Christ. So yeah. so don't get me wrong. And um, it may be that when we look at the preaching of Jesus or the preaching of Paul or anyone, right, that we can learn some insights as long as they're confirmed by other passages of Scripture, I think, that explicitly exhort us to do that. But here, here, here's, let me get, get at it this way. There was a, uh, there was a, uh, a leadership guy, I'll just say, I don't want to give his name away, who wrote a book a number of years ago, and, and uh, he modeled all these different kinds of leadership on different periods of history in the Bible. And I remember uh, reading his book, and he actually came and spoke at our seminary, and, we, and he invited us into the groups, and we had to say, now, would you want to be a leader under the king's age, or would you be a leader under the gospel age, or whatever, you know? And, and I'm like, well, I'm a little uncomfortable with this exercise, because the purpose you know, of the Bible is not to kind of give that. And what's more, he held up, uh, he talked about finishing leadership strong, the end of your life, finishing strong. And uh, he held up the example of Paul. And uh, and I said, well, wait a minute, uh, Paul and Barnabas, you know, they did have a conflict earlier in life. And what about that? You know, is that a model for leadership? So um, anyway, uh, I, I'm maybe going on a little too long on that, but I'm just saying why not to be cautious about looking to Jesus as a model for, I mean, yes, as a model for us to live the Christian life, but as preachers. Now, 
Having said that, um, I could say that there are some dangers about preaching these seven letters. If I could say something about that, unless I'm going on too long, <laughs> and they really no such to thing. This. No podcasts okay. are long form. You you, okay, you talk so, until you're done, sir. So so one okay. This, this okay. I'll start with the neg- more negative one. Well, they're both dangers, so I guess they're both negative. This relates to Jesus. Um, there's a there's a note of judgment in the seven sermons that is quite strong and that typically the modern audience doesn't really like <laughs> because uh, people today don't like a judging Jesus. They, they like a, a soft and gentle Jesus, you know, the kind of Jesus, you know, who's got children on his lap and lambs running around in the background. And they don't like a Jesus who's got not just a sword, but a sharp double-edged sword. And what's mm-hmm. more, it's coming out of his mouth. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, so uh, it, this, this isn't felt as strongly when you stretch out over seven or eight weeks. But, you know, it's interesting. I felt it myself when I've done intensive teaching in one or two days. This note of judgment is felt to a greater degree. And so I guess my exhortation for pastors is to know this up front. And so as you're working through the seven sermons, make sure that you emphasize grace right, wherever you can, and maybe highlight it so that the note of judgment isn't overshadowed. So, for example, okay, uh, when you get to sermon number seven, and there are a number of things that show that that the sermon to Laodicea is the worst. Uh, There's no commendation, uh, and what's more, the complaint is longer than any other complaint that Jesus has, and the language is very vivid. The Greek text, it isn't found in almost any translation, but Jesus says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Actually, there's an old-fashioned English word, spew you out of your mouth, which in colloquial language is, Jesus says, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. And the Greek text clearly uses that verb for vomiting. And so it's a very violent reaction. So, so there are all kinds of clues Uh, There's no commendation, no thumbs up. Um, There's a long complaint, and the complaint involves quite strong language. These are the worst of the churches, that is, the church of Laodicea. And then we get to the end of the sermon, and um, if you know the structure, there's first a negative consequence and then a positive one. So the negative consequence, I'm like bracing myself because... All the other sermons have a pretty strong judgment, like Jesus has some pretty harsh consequences for these other churches, which weren't near as bad as Laodicea. And so I'm saying if you're following the structure, it's like brace yourself, strap yourself in. I mean, because this is going to be bad. And then you get to the negative consequence and we read something like, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and him with me. And you're like, what? I didn't see that coming. I mean, I was expecting, these aren't words of judgment. These are words of grace, right? And actually the text says, those whom I uh, love, I rebuke. I, I know that people don't you know, we, our, our kids, you know, our parents said that to us as kids. And we sometimes say that, you know, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. But actually, there's truth to it, right? The discipline comes with love. So if, you're, if, you, if you know that there's already a strong note of judgment in the seven sermons, you want to highlight the fact that this is a message out of love, as bad as they are. And notice that 
Jesus says, I want to stand in the door and knock. And you have to realize at the beginning of the sermon, Jesus has introduced himself as the ruler of God's creation. The rulers have all kinds of power. Jesus has more than enough power over all creation. He doesn't need to stand at the door and in a wussy way knock. I mean, he can just blow the door. He can do whatever he wants. And Jesus is like the sad sack boyfriend who's been dumped by his beloved, and he still stands at the door with a bouquet of flowers and knocking, saying, please, please. And I would want the reader, and if I were preaching, I would want the hearer to capture the powerful note of grace, that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. You can live a life so bad that it makes Jesus want to puke, and yet he still loves you. He still cares for you. He still wants a relationship with you. And so... This is, in this, this little thing I've been talking about, this is both an illustration of knowing the structure and how the change in the structure is benefit, but it also is trying to say, now, there's more than enough judgment in the seven sermons. Make sure that you don't miss or downplay the note of grace, all right? So that's one word of warning. I mean, it relates to your question, because if you say, well, what kind of preaching did Jesus have? I say, well, it was pretty strong, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, he, he didn't pull punches, uh, you know, in these seven sermons. Now, a second part to this answer is, um, I've, I have to be careful how to word this. Um, uh, there, there's kind of this, uh, how shall I say it? This idea that the pastor is going to come in now and this mysterious, intimidating, scary book of Revelation, you can give thanks to God, congregation, that I'm here to explain to you what it means. You know, he, he won't say it. You won't say it this way, but um, uh, some of us have known about the danger of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is a Greek word on knowledge and the idea that somehow certain people are privileged to secret knowledge and the knowledge is the way to salvation. There are pa- there's a danger in presenting the seven sermons like, wait a minute, you poor people will never get it. But again, you know, good thing I came along and I'm the big revealer who will give you these truths. And you go, oh, wow. Yeah. And, and so, um, and I have the same with leading tours, you know, it goes one step further, you know, for those I've been there, you know, and I can tell you what it really means, these symbols and so forth. And so, um, there's a there's a call for humbleness here. Uh, be careful that you don't preach or teach it in a way that your your audience feels marginalized or distanced. So, you know, um, uh, so I, I've said enough, and I'll give you a chance here to respond to these two answers that maybe you didn't quite expect to the question: What kind of preacher was Jesus? No, I mean I I realize it's it's a it's a tricky question, and so. Um, I've, I've heard some people really even very simplistically say, well, we learned from Jesus here. It's important to give, you know, a critique sandwich, you know, when we're given feedback, make sure that we say positive and then also negative and then positive again. Um, and so I've heard that and that feels rather, rather trite. And um, I wasn't expecting something trite uh, from you. And so thank you for that, a big, broad, um, thoughtful, uh, I don't know, concern or yeah again and and he is you mentioned that we, we look to him you know we looked at him as like the author and finish of our faith not so much kind of like the role model and how how to preach i think we can learn certain things from his communication style these illustrations or whatever but ultimately he's the one we preach about um not the one that we necessarily mimic his unique style 
Right? And because some things are cross-cultural that Jesus does, but some things are not. I mean, Jesus is preaching to a lower class, uh, you know, Jewish audience, and he can assume a lot of things about that, right, that the preacher today cannot. I mean, I'm not preaching always to lower class. I certainly are preaching to people who don't know the Old Testament or the custom, you know. So there are all kinds of ways you have to be cautious, right, uh, if you're going to use Jesus as a model. Because if Jesus came today to preach, I'm sure his sermons would be a mm. little different, right? Mm. They would mm. uh, they would be adapted to fit the specific context of our time and our age. Yeah. Okay. Now, here's, you mentioned some, that there's, in in these messages, there is a strong current of of judgment, and of course, as you mentioned, there's notes of grace throughout, again and again and again, and we do well to, to highlight them. I visited a church's like retreat. This is going back so many years ago. This is in Dublin, and they were going they were going through the eight churches. It was the message from Jesus to the eight churches, and the first seven were these ones. And then the eighth, maybe you can guess it, it was that Dublin church. And uh, and the preacher on this retreat was saying, I, you know, this is what Jesus wants to say about our church. And, you know, it continued through with that theme of like judgment that, that you mentioned, but it almost was almost it was definitely lacking even those notes of grace. It was it was essentially a rant about how people aren't volunteering enough and they're not respecting their pastor uh, enough. Uh, I mentioned that just as just a, a cringe-worthy example of m- missing that grace, and then also weaponizing it uh, to get more volunteers to put out chairs, and then also get a bit more respect for for himself. It was the the worst thing I've, I've ever sat through, to be honest. Um, do, do you have you <laughs> how do you recommend that we also have an, an eighth church and have a, a message allegedly from Jesus to our congregations? Uh, no, because. Somehow it also implies, or it seems to send a bit of a message that the other seven aren't to our church. You know, it's only this eighth one that is, right? And uh, so a couple of things. One, you know, the fact that there are seven churches, um, seven is clear. Well, first of all, it's a, you know, the book of Revelation is apocalyptic. And one of the features of apocalyptic is, you know, the use of numbers in a more metaphorical or symbolic way. And we know there were other churches in Asia Minor, right? Uh, Because... Colossae is located right. uh, just down the street, you know, just down the river or just down the Lycus Valley from uh, Laodicea. And Hierapolis is across the other side. And we know there were churches there, right, and so forth, because we have the letter to Colossians and the letter to Philemon. And so so the seven are kind of picked, you know, kind of representing the church as a whole. And it's clear that... Um, the message to Ephesus is not just Ephesus. Yes, it has a particular message and emphasis for them, but Jesus expects the other Christians in Asia Minor and elsewhere to be listening in, right, on their mail, so to say, or on their sermon. And the degree to which it is relevant for them, it also needs to be uh, applied. And that's the way that uh, we should we should treat it uh, today. I mean, in my mind, um, the book of Revelation should be exegeted, interpreted the same as, say, the letters of Paul, right? Uh, Paul's letters were written to a, let's take Corinthians, for example, right? When Paul wrote the Corinthians, he wasn't thinking about 21st century Christians. He was thinking about that congregation in Corinth that he founded, right? He led them to Christ. He was there for a year and a half. And, you know, they had specific issues and and Paul responds to the letter that they wrote to him and what he learns about them. Now, 
though th that letter, even though it has a very particular message first and foremost to them, it has implications for God's will for us today. And in a very similar way, when we get to, say, the sermon or the letter to, to the Ephesians in the book of Revelation, right? Um, it has a particular audience and a particular situation in mind, and we first discover what that is, and then we think about its implications for today. And in some churches, its implications were more direct and immediate than others, right? So, for instance, the church, I call the church of Ephesus the church of loveless, loveless orthodoxy. orthodoxy. Loveless orthodoxy. And so... It seems to be a, a church that is commended for orthodox. Orthodoxy is a good thing, right? Churches and Christians should know the truth and speak the truth and defend the truth. Yay, that's a good thing. But sometimes, you know, too much of a good thing is not a good thing. And so um, if you're, you know, if that, if that describes you as an individual Christian and if that describes our congregation, then we need to hear what the Spirit was saying to the churches, plural, right? Not just the church of Ephesus, hmm. not just the hmm. other churches of the ancient world, but the church today. And so then we apply it there. So then we go on to another congregation, right? And uh, like like uh, Pergamum, it deals with meat sacrificed to idols. And if you understand that properly, it really is dealing with idolatry, and uh, I would argue that uh, the sin of idolatry is a big challenge for almost any congregation today. And so the, the idols are different, and the way we worship those idols are different, but the sin of idolatry is every bit uh, a problem and a temptation today as it was then. And so again, the, the message is first and foremost for Pergamum and their situation, but then we apply it to the degree that it's relevant to us today. And so uh, I would argue that all seven are applicable today, and it's a bit misleading to somehow come up with an imaginary eighth uh, where you can slot in maybe all the things, you know, that you say, oh, this is my chance to, to rebuke the church on this, or this is my chance to encourage giving, you know, by slipping this in. And so there's no need for that. It's a misuse of Scripture. And um, uh, the, these passages, well, well, again, let me just say it this way, because I haven't said this yet in our conversation. I think that a lot of people treat Revelation the way I did, okay? And, and uh, maybe not, but I'm pretty sure it's the case. Because I found a quote from Craig Keener, another good egghead scholar, uh, who said exactly the same thing. So I looked at Revelation as written to like super Christians. These are like the people who are following Jesus to the max, even though there's opposition, and some of them are even dying, you know? And, and that made the book of Revelation not relevant, frankly, for me, at least in my part of the world, because where I live in North America, I'm not under persecution. I'm not facing death. And so the book was distant for me because of its weird images and metaphors, and it didn't seem relevant to my life. And what I discovered very quickly is that actually, instead of these seven congregations being super Christians, Actually, they're not. They're weak Christians. The majority of them, there are two exceptions of the seven, but the majority of these churches are compromising their faith. And that describes what I see a lot of the Western church. Now, it's not true of Christians in, in Asia and so forth, right, who are marginalized and facing opposition for their faith. But for many of us, we're kind of wanting the gospel and the world, right? And we're saying, what can we do to still hang on to the idols of this world, but yet also not give up God and Jesus? And so why this is important is suddenly now these seven letters or sermons 
which I thought were remote and distant from my situation in my day, were suddenly extremely relevant. And so it made me very excited about teaching them and preaching them. And I hope that you found that out too uh, in the middle of your series, that uh, this is very relevant stuff that is easily applicable for Jesus followers today. Yeah. I mean, yeah, so far, so good. We're only a few weeks into it, but it's 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 going it's going well so far. Some feedback that I've gotten, and I wanted to ask to ask your thoughts on this is um people have come to me and said, are we going to continue on through Revelation? Will we do chapter four, five, six, all the way up to, to 20, uh, 21, 22, 20, 22. Oops. Um, and, and I've, and I've disappointed everybody by saying, no, we're just gonna, we're gonna stop at the end of chapter three and then move into a series on one Corinthians. And I'll probably get back in touch with you once we start our Corinthians series. Uh, if you have any more coaching you can give about Corinthians, but is it, do you have kind of, um, is there an apologia? Is there a reason why you think it's okay to do just this section and not the whole thing? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, a, a good and somewhat tricky question for me because I want to say uh, yes and no, uh, you know. So in principle, right, in approaching scripture, I always stress with students, it's very important to begin at the right spot and end at the right spot. In other words, you have to have what I sometimes call a legitimate preaching or teaching unit. And uh, it's important for your audience to remember that um, the chapters in our Bible are not original to the text, right? They were added in about the 11th century, and the verses were added even later than that. So if you preach chapter by chapter, you're not really following the intent of the author. Some of the chapter divisions are okay, but... A lot of them are artificially made. And so I always say it's really important to make sure you know the literary unit to which your passage belongs. Now, you can preach on a section within that unit, but it's still important for you to know the unit that in which it belongs. So, for example, to go to another part of Scripture, um, take spiritual gifts. No, no, not the better one. Take um, the chapter of love, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, right? Okay, the love chapter, right? Yeah, you, you, well, you just dodged uh, a, a complicated subject. <laughs> no, I'm going to still bring it in, but oh, okay, uh, okay. anyway, um, I mean, you know, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians was not put in there to give preachers a text to use for weddings, you know. Uh, no, actually, it's really crucial to see that chapter 13 is in the center of a unit that begins earlier in 12 and ends in 14. What's in 12 and 14? Both of them deal with spiritual gifts and more particularly the gift of tongues versus prophecy. And Paul has deliberately included chapter 13, with love in the middle of that discussion. And so that's an example of how, whether you're preaching anywhere on 12, 13, and 14, you need to know that larger unit of which that belongs. And so in principle, I want to stress how important it is to know where the legitimate beginning and ending of any unit is. Now, getting to the seven letters or the seven sermons. They are a separate unit, Okay, there are clues within the text that mark it out beginning and ending, namely two in chapters two and three. But nevertheless, it is important to know that it's part of a larger text, namely the book of Revelation. And uh, you will know a little bit since you've worked through my book already that all of the Christ titles. So every sermon begins with a Christ title. 
all of them, with minor exceptions, come from chapter 1. So, so John, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, kind of reaches back to the first chapter. So those descriptions of Jesus holding the seven stars, or I mentioned earlier, the sharp double-edged sword, all of those images come out of chapter 1 and the vision of Jesus in chapter 1, uh, 9 to 20. And uh, so it's important to make those connections. And there are also links between, not surprisingly, because the book of Revelation is written by a good author, that there are links between the seven letters and the rest of Revelation, right? Now, so the, I'm saying yes and no. I'm saying, uh, yes, it's important to know that it's part of the whole book of Revelation, but you can still preach on a unit within that beginning and end, as long as it's a legitimate unit. So I think that... Um, there may be practical reasons, you know, not to go on and have another series on all the book of Revelation because it does get kind of long and unwieldy after a while, right? Uh, and maybe you can do that at another time. Or maybe you can do a superficial treatment of the major units, right? So, you you know, once you've done a detailed study of the seven sermons or letters, right, maybe a year or two later you say, okay, I'm just going to have one sermon reminding you of what all seven, and then you go on to the other unit so that your hearers how it, see how it fits within the book as a whole. So uh, I, I do think that if you're preaching a series, if there are pastors, right, why not have a first, why not have eight-week series and have the first week being Revelation 1? Because that will give you a, a chance, because in Revelation 1, we find out that John's on the island of Patmos, you know, and... Uh, it probably would be helpful for your audience to know, well, why is he on the island of Patmos? Is it for evangelism reasons? Is it persecution reasons? Or is it something else? And what's the island of Patmos like? Uh, it's not really a modern-day Alcatraz, okay? And uh, also um, the links. You know, you might have a chance to preach on the vision of Jesus so that when you get to those uh, echoes in uh, this, the next following weeks, people will have some familiarity with it. So I do think that you could do a seven-week and just start with Ephesians. That's okay. But another way to do it is to have an eight-week series and have the first week in chapter one kind of setting the stage for what is to come and the context and then going through all seven. So there's at least a couple of comments in response to the question about how, how, to, how to preach it and how it fits with the rest of the book. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I like what you're saying because that's what we're doing. Yeah, we, we did a, we're doing an eight-week. We did uh, – it was on, uh, you know, Sunday – January 1st. So we did uh, chapter one kind of in one go, you know, seeing the real Jesus in 2023 and then different um, graphics and everything. And then chapter seven, we kind of introduced even a new series title and a new, as, as if it was kind of its own series, but it's based on that. Also, attend attendance was so dismal on uh, January 1st. Uh, I was I'm like, okay, I'm glad that I didn't kind of, I don't want to say waste Ephesians 1, I'm sorry, the, the Ephesians letter on this. I'm, I'm glad that we kind of waited until attendance kind of ebbed back to, to what it is. Anyway, that's another, that's a whole other issue. Um, I'm looking at the clock. How much more time do you, do you have? I don't want to, you could talk about this all day and I could listen all day, but what does what your schedule allow? And um, Well, maybe you can pick one last question that you it. really are eager to ask and uh, and then we can, uh, we can call it a, a day and we can always have a follow-up discussion sometime down the road on this or another subject. Once I get to yeah the, the letter of Paul, then uh, maybe I'll I'll get back in touch. Okay, let's maybe let's let's park Revelation. 
lastly, I want to talk to you as like, as a communicator, as a Bible teacher, as, as a preacher, how are you currently trying to improve as, as a Bible teacher? Uh, how would you like to, to finish this year um, as a better preacher? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think I've answered that a little bit already in the sense that, um, one, there's a kind of self-reflection on my own sermons, right? Uh, Remember my comment earlier about how when I would re-preach a sermon, I would say, now, why did I make that change or so forth? So so I tried to be more conscious and deliberate about that so that I could kind of identify changes and strategies that I would implement then, you know, in the first draft of the next sermon. So that's that's uh, one thing. Also, I try to solicit feedback. Um you know, sometimes people are reluctant to offer uh, criticism, either because I'm perceived as the egghead theologian or or we, we're more and more in a culture where people don't want to be offensive and so forth. So but I try to find somebody who's confident enough and I have a, you know, I have a good relationship with, you know, that they can offer some feedback. Right. So I think uh, that that's that's important. Yeah. Um, not not the chair of despair again. No, no, not the chair of despair. <laughs> no, no. Okay. That's right. Uh, but I mean, I, I, I encourage people to be frank, you know, be honest. Uh, right. Uh, uh, I mean, of course, I'm hoping that involves some affirmation because we all need to be encouraged. But, uh, you know, I had that with my wife, too. Uh, you know, was there a spot where all kinds of things can be improved? Um uh, uh, three, uh, sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll accept a preaching assignment on a text that maybe, you know, I'm not excited about, uh, but it'll force me to kind of wrestle with a different genre of scripture or maybe even a difficult passage. Um, it's a good question to raise. So, um, you know, I'm familiar with Paul and his letters and my sermons can be nice and logical and deductive. But, you know, what about Hebrew poetry, right? I mean, should a, should a sermon on a psalm have the same kind of structure or outline that a, that a Pauline letter has, right? And um, sometimes to experiment with different models like narrative preaching, right? I, I think that narrative preaching has become popular recently. By that, I mean you kind of retell the story. And there are some dangers. Uh, some of the dangers are you just retell it in a superficial way. Sometimes I ask my wife, because I don't trust my own judgment, she says, well, you know, I kind of knew that already, right? So I'm not talking about retelling the story with nothing fresh or insight. Now, if you add new details, there's also dangers, because sometimes people, they don't know enough about the first century. I'm picking a, gospel, a New Testament text. They don't know enough about the ancient world, the Roman world, that when they add stuff, they add stuff that's, that I would judge is non-historical, right? They, they create situations or scenarios that have no basis in reality. So, so I sometimes want to draw on my knowledge of the history, culture of the ancient world in order to retell a story, right, in a, new, in a truly new and fresh way uh, that not only have new details, but the, maybe the, the, the message of the text uh, comes out. Uh, so those are at least some of the things that I do. But remember, I'm uh, my full-time job is supposed to be a teacher, and uh, right. this preaching's a side job, if you will. Well, I, I, but uh, but of course, it is a big part uh, of what I do because uh, one, uh, well, I think it keeps me fresh in the classroom. I'm teaching not undergraduate students, but I'm teaching people who are thinking about ministry. And by me being in the pulpit, uh, that gets me out in the church, and mm. I think it puts me in a better position to kind of know what expectations are, right? For example, um, 
the three criteria typically that people use to judge a good sermon are not very healthy. One is how long is the sermon, right? So my, I, have, I have a motto, right? The longer I am, the better I'd better be. And it takes a second, right, for it to sink in. The longer I am, the better I'd better be. So if I'm going to be long, I better be on the top of my game, right? So, yeah. uh, And that's true for podcasts too, by the way. Notice how I wanted to bring it to a close. Secondly, um, uh, secondly um, you have to be interesting and preferably funny, Okay, because no one no one likes a boring speaker, and there's some pressure to say something that's humorous. And then thirdly, um, there there's it has to be relevant. It has to you know people want to take something home with them and so forth. Now, in principle, I don't want to be long, and I do want to be interesting and preferably funny, and I do want to be practical. But notice, I could preach a short sermon that people would find quite captivating, and I could even give them three steps to take home, and I've never once said how what, how faithful was the sermon to the text, right? How accurate did it reflect the teaching of the Word? And so, um, so I guess I wanted to put a plug in there, right? Uh, because uh, I don't know about your audience, but some of your audience are facing those same pressures that I'm facing, right? To be short, funny, and relevant. And they want to jump too quickly to the here and now. And I want everyone to slow down and focus on the then and there, right, uh, of the text. So a little exhortation to not only your readers, but again to myself, uh, right, to uh, not shortchange the exegetical process uh, in, in, in the preaching of the word. Solid uh, aspirational goals um, for yourself and for all of us as well. Um, thank you so much for letting us in on that, and thank you for making time for for this conversation. And I will include in the show notes there'll be links where people can can get the uh, the Revelation book uh, as well as the other tomes uh, that you have been written, as well as links to yeah, jeffreywyma.com. Um, or, and I'll, I'll make sure there's, yeah, resources, all these things that have been listed will be accessible and available to the people. Uh, appreciate your ministry. Appreciate your, your writing. Uh, maybe one day I'd love to, to go on a tour with you in uh, one of these Bible lands and, and learn more from you myself. But in the meanwhile, I'm thankful for the books and for this conversation. And for the listeners of this podcast, I hope that this episode and all that we do at Expositors Collective helps you to grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. Thanks, Jeff. All right. Thanks again, Dr. Wyma. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for making time to talk with me. And I look forward to having you on again to talk about the letters of Paul. So for those that are planning on registering for our Austin event, the, the link is in the show notes, or you can go to expositorscollective.com to find out more about the schedule and the speakers. Uh, next week is a real continuation of this theme because I actually am interviewing another author whose book I was reading for a sermon prep, and I reached out to him and I invited him onto the show. Next Tuesday is Jeremy Reipal talking about his book, which is called Pastor Jesus is Enough. He actually is unpackaging the seven messages of Jesus to the Church of Revelation as well, but from much more of a devotional and encouraging message to burnt out church leaders. So if that's you, or if that could be you in the future, make sure that you're subscribed so that this automatically comes to your device next Tuesday. We believe that Jesus has words of encouragement to burnt out church leaders. I hope that this episode and next episode 
and our training events, that all of them work together to help you grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's Word. God bless you. Thank you.